prayer from Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I'd like to start by picking out one verse from that long Bible passage. Verse number 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together. It's not the most important verse of the passage. But as a snapshot of believers responding to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it can serve as an example to us, an inspiration to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together. The two people in view in that verse have just travelled on foot from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. Looking at verse 29, their home seems to be there in Emmaus. They invite their travelling companion to come in and stay with them there. Now, this village Emmaus is seven miles from Jerusalem, according to verse 13. So these two residents of Emmaus have just walked seven miles from Jerusalem to their home. And verse 33 says they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Seven miles is a long way to walk, especially if you've already walked seven miles earlier that same day. If you were on vacation and someone said to you over breakfast, how about a seven mile walk? later today, you might well say, that sounds great. If they said, let's make it a 14-mile walk, you'd probably say, steady on. I'm not sure I have the right shoes to walk 14 miles. 14 miles is a long way to walk. 14 miles is longer than the entire length of Manhattan. If you start at South Ferry, and keep walking north for 14 miles, you'll end up somewhere in the Bronx. What's more, by the time of that verse 33 decision to return to Jerusalem, the sun has set and it's dark outside. Darkness must have fallen because we're told in verse 29 that the day is almost over and the verse 33 decision is taken sometime later. It's taken after they've gone into the house and after they've begun their evening meal. So these two people are choosing to turn a seven-mile walk into a 14-mile walk. It's no longer a walk home. It's a walk back to the big city. And it's no longer light outside. They'll be walking in darkness. Why do they take that verse 33 decision? Well, the reason is they have just seen Jesus risen from the dead. They had followed Jesus before his death. And after seeing him again, 
they want to be with their fellow disciples. The distance doesn't put them off. The darkness doesn't put them off. What we have in verse 33 is the energizing effect of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection had a, a, an energizing effect on those two walkers. And it still has an energizing effect on people today. If you've been a Christian for decades, focusing once again on Jesus' resurrection can reawaken your desire to be with his followers, God's people, to assemble with them. If you're not yet a Christian, thank you for joining us today. Jesus' resurrection could energize you to become one of Jesus' followers and join the people of God. This morning, we're going on a journey of our own, a sitting down journey through this Bible passage. It's the true story of two of Jesus' followers who encounter him after he's risen from the dead. They walk with him and get into conversation with him without recognizing him, a detail we'll return to later. In a rather comic twist, these two walkers then start talking to Jesus about Jesus. wonder if that's ever happened to you. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has talked to you about you without knowing you are you? I don't think that's ever happened to me, and I'm not sure that I want it to happen to me. But it happened to Jesus, and that's the basic plot line of this passage that we're going to journey through. There are three markers for us along the way, three staging posts, and the first is downcast faces. Downcast faces. If you look down with me, please, to verse 15, I'll read from there. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as they walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Why are their faces downcast? gloomy, miserable on that Sunday afternoon. It's because these two walkers had been Jesus' followers. And as they point out in verse 21, this is just the third day since their Lord and Master died. The sights and sounds of his execution must have been fresh in their memory. Here's how the ESV Study Bible describes death by crucifixion. It says crucifixion was the ultimate indignity, a public statement by Rome that the crucified one was beyond contempt. The excruciating physical pain was magnified by the degradation and humiliation. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, 
could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person, end quote. The two walkers had seen their Lord die that death. And their grief is one reason why their faces are downcast. They're in mourning. But there's another reason why these walkers are miserable. On top of their grief, there's also disappointment. In verse 21, they say, We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. To redeem is to liberate. It's what happened to Israel in the days of Moses, when the Israelites were brought out of slavery in Egypt. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We're now going to spend some time exploring that verse 21 hope that seems to have been thwarted. And it might seem for a few minutes as if we've gone off topic for Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. But please stick with me because this side alley exploring verse 21 will help us grasp the purpose of the resurrection. So here's the verse 21 side alley. Early in Luke's gospel, when Jesus is still a baby, he's taken by his parents to the temple in Jerusalem, where they come across a prophet named Simeon. Luke says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for Israel to be consoled, to be comforted. We have to keep in mind that Israel was at that time ruled by foreigners. It was just one small part of the Roman Empire. And that was wretched for the people of Israel because they knew from the scriptures that they were God's people. And for God's people to be governed by outsiders, to be ruled by not God's people, well, that was a topsy-turvy, upside-down state of affairs. It was like living in a hall of mirrors, a carnival room filled with distorting mirrors. Their daily experience of life didn't seem to fit their identity as God's people. They were God's people, but they were ruled by not God's people. That's why Simeon was waiting for Israel to be consoled. He wanted that situation to change. He wanted God's people to be in charge of their own affairs again. Let's be clear, that was a good desire for Simeon to have. We can be sure about that because Luke doesn't have a bad word to say about Simeon. He says Simeon was righteous and devout and he says, the Holy Spirit was upon him. What's more, in Luke chapter 1, we find Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, talking about Israel being delivered from its enemies. And Luke tells us Zechariah is speaking by the Holy Spirit when he says that. So like Simeon, Zechariah is rightly looking forward to a time when God's people won't be under the thumb of their enemies. That's the side alley over. And the point to take away from it is that it shows the hope expressed by our two walkers in verse 21 was a good desire for them to have. 
If it was right and good for Simeon and Zechariah to desire Israel's freedom, it must have been right for the walkers to desire it too. Throughout the Bible, it's good when God's people are in charge of their own affairs and bad when other people are ruling over them. The two walkers in our passage were right to hope that God's people would rule themselves again. Now there's something else that the walkers get right in verse 21. They say we had hoped that he, meaning Jesus, was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The walkers believed one man would redeem Israel. They knew God had promised in the scriptures to send one great saviour to Israel, the Messiah. In Jeremiah 23, for example, God says, I will raise up from David's line a king who will do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Israel will live in safety. So the walkers were right to be hoping for the liberation of Israel, God's people, and they were also right to expect that one man, the Messiah, would do that liberating. In fact, everything they say in verse 21 is on target, apart from one thing, the past tense. We had hoped, they say, that he, Jesus, was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They've stopped hoping. That's the problematic part of verse 21. That's what Jesus will rebuke them for later. They're looking back on a past hope, a crushed hope, a hope they've given up on. They had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah who would liberate Israel, but verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. In the eyes of the two walkers, that was enough to stamp out the fire of hope in their hearts. After the events of verse 20, the walkers thought Jesus couldn't possibly be the one who would redeem Israel. And that's where they've gone wrong. It's not the content of their hope that's problematic. It's the fact they've stopped hoping that Jesus is the one who will do those things. Well, that brings us to the next marker on our journey through the passage, burning hearts, burning hearts. Let's look down, please, to verse 32. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? That's how they remember their walk with Jesus. It was a time when their hearts blazed within them as Jesus explained the scriptures. What did Jesus say? to rekindle their hope. It's all contained in verses 25 through 27, or it's summarized there, with the core point in the middle, verse 26. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things uh, and then enter his glory? 
or translated more literally, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things so as to enter his glory? In other words, those sufferings in verse 20 were necessary to bring about the very things the two walkers had been hoping for. Let's now unpack the logic of verse 26. The reason why Israel had been ruled by its enemies for so long, the reason why God's people had been ruled by not God's people was because of Israel's sin. Like all human beings, the Israelites were guilty of living life their way instead of God's way. Like all human beings, instead of showing devotion to God, they showed him the door. Now, it would not have been loving for God to act as if nothing had happened when his people sinned in that way. He demonstrated love by punishing his people to show them that all was not well when they turned their backs on him. Ezra, one of the great religious leaders of Israel in the time of the Old Testament, sums all of this up when he says, Because of our sins, we have been subjected to humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. That's Ezra chapter 9 verse 7, an important Bible verse for understanding Israel's situation in the centuries leading up to Jesus. Here it is again. Ezra says, because of our sins, we've been subjected to humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. Ezra knew that the wretchedness of Israel's situation, God's people ruled by not God's people, was caused by the sin of God's people. And so the problem of foreign oppression could only be solved by the removal of sin, by dealing with the sin of the people. And that's where the Messiah comes in. That's why, in the words of verse 26, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer so as to enter his glory. God's king, the Messiah, couldn't rule over God's people unless the problem of their sin was solved. God's king wouldn't have a population to rule over, a population of human beings, unless the problem of their sin was solved. And God's king, the Lord Jesus, chose to solve that problem himself through his death on the cross. God's king loved God's people enough to give his life for them. Arms stretched wide and nailed to the crossbeam, feet nailed to the post. It was the only way the problem of human sin could be solved. As he died on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, was punished so that anyone who trusts in him would not be punished. Anyone 
who receives Jesus as God's king, no longer carries the burden of their sin. Anyone who receives Jesus as God's king no longer faces punishment for sin. God's king loved his people so much that he gave his life for them on the cross. Now, Jesus thinks the two walkers should have already understood all of that. That's why he gives them such a stern rebuke in verse 25. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And according to verse 27, he then leads a spontaneous Bible study. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Verse 27 is a famous verse, often quoted, often quoted in a standalone way. And it's not wrong to do that. It's a glorious verse. But I hope you see that verse 27 is firmly connected to the two previous verses. The ultimate purpose of Jesus' whole Bible, Bible study is to defend what he said in the previous verse. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? The purpose of the Bible study is to show the two walkers how foolish they've been to think the cross ruined Jesus' credentials as Messiah. No, the opposite is true. The cross reinforced Jesus' credentials as Messiah. That's the point of Jesus' whole Bible, Bible study. One of the Bible books Jesus would have spoken about is the book of Isaiah. Jesus would surely have quoted from Isaiah chapter 9, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne, establishing and upholding it from that time on and forever. Jesus would have quoted that, a core passage about the Messiah, the coming Saviour. But Jesus would also have quoted from later in Isaiah. Later in Isaiah, the same person, the one who brings salvation to the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49 verse 6, is described in the next verse, Isaiah 49, verse 7, as despised and rejected. Then in Isaiah 53, that despised and rejected one who brings salvation to the ends of the earth goes to his death. Isaiah 53, verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. What a good fit that has with the events of verse 20. Handed over to death and crucified. Well, what a Bible study that must have been 
Jesus showed those two walkers how essential it was for the Messiah to suffer before entering his glory. Notice what Jesus doesn't correct. He doesn't say they were wrong to be hoping for Israel's redemption. That confirms what we saw earlier when we went back to Simeon and Zechariah. They were all of them right to be hoping for Israel's redemption. And that should impact the way we think about Jesus and his work in this world. He came to redeem God's people, the people of Israel. He came to liberate them. That liberation began when he solved the problem of sin and it will be brought to completion when Jesus, the King of Israel, the King of the Jews, returns to rule in the new Jerusalem forever. That is when God's people will finally experience the fullness of consolation and safety that Simeon and Zechariah spoke about. That is when God's people will experience the fullness of the redemption that our two walkers were hoping for in the future when Jesus returns. Wonderfully, King Jesus invites people of every tribe and language and people and nation to join in with his eternal kingdom. Later in this same Bible chapter, Luke chapter 24, Jesus tells his disciples, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations. From our position in salvation history, we can see a, a massive expansion of God's people as people from all nations receive Jesus as their king. King Jesus has subjects on every continent waiting for him to return, waiting to experience the fullness of redemption. How those Christians in Nigeria that we were praying for earlier must be waiting to experience the fullness of redemption. God's people ruling themselves in safety with Jesus as king. How Ukrainian Christians must be waiting at this time to experience the fullness of redemption when Jesus returns. It's time for us to press on to the last wayside marker on our journey through this passage. We've traveled past downcast faces and burning hearts. And the final wayside marker is opened eyes. Opened eyes. I'll read from verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. As the two walkers arrive in Emmaus, 
they eagerly invite Jesus to stay with them, still not knowing that Jesus is Jesus. He accepts their invitation, and after they've gone inside, they all sit down for an evening meal. It seems Jesus offers to say the customary prayer of thanksgiving for the bread, and that means he's the one who distributes the bread to the others. And that's when they realise who he is. That's when they realise who they've been talking with for the past few hours. There is mystery here. We know from other appearance accounts in the four Gospels that the resurrected Jesus didn't look quite the same as he had looked before his resurrection. By the way, that is a powerful argument against the idea that the New Testament is some kind of hoax. That the gospel accounts about Jesus were invented. If you were inventing the gospels, you would not have a resurrected Jesus whose followers found him hard to recognize. If you're inventing a resurrected Jesus, you would make him very recognizably Jesus. But that doesn't seem to be the way it was. The resurrected Jesus looked a little different. People didn't recognize him immediately. But it's possible that something other than that was happening here with these two walkers, because back in verse 16, we're told they were kept from recognizing him. Literally, their eyes were held back from recognizing him. So it could be this was a special spiritual failure to recognize who he was, that God wanted them to experience temporarily. That holding back of their eyes comes to an end as Jesus breaks the bread in verse 30. And it's possible, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that as he distributed the bread, they saw the the wounds in his hands and realized who it was they had with them. Then the mystery continues because he, he disappears at that very moment. He's no longer with them, but they have seen enough. They have seen enough to return immediately to Jerusalem to find the other disciples. Those two disciples, the walkers, were so thrilled and excited that they immediately walked all the way back to Jerusalem at night to be with the other disciples. We've actually done something very similar this morning. We've gathered together with other disciples to share our delight in the risen Jesus, the reality of his resurrection. But it may be there are times to come in the future when we won't feel so eager to gather with God's people. It might be a Sunday morning when the rain is hammering down outside and we don't want to leave our bed. It may be 
a community group that we think we'll just not go to this week. Now there are times when it might be right to stay home. There are times when it might be right not to attend community group. But when it is right for us to be with God's people, the resurrection of Jesus Christ will energize us. It will give us the desire to assemble with his other followers to rejoice in the risen Lord Jesus together with them. The resurrection of Jesus energizes us in all of our Christian living. It energizes us to pray. It energizes us to obey his commands, the king's commands. It energizes us to reach out with this good news to those who don't yet know it. But it particularly energizes God's people to do what those two walkers did, to find out, to seek out other believers in Jesus and rejoice in the risen Jesus together with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible study that your son Jesus did with those two walkers on the way to Emmaus. We thank you for the way he showed them that your people will be fully redeemed because of the Messiah's sufferings. Father, we do look forward to the day when our identity as your people will match up with our day-to-day experience. We look forward to the time when we will live in safety with you forever. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that the resurrection of your Son will energize us to meet with your people in the meantime. Would it give us the desire to assemble with others who also believe in Jesus so that we can rejoice in him together with them? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.